Most of you probably know by now we're releasing a book on December 7th, uh, the banner there. We're actually uh, taking on several new outreach evangelism-related initiatives in 2015 here at Upcountry Church, and the book is one of those primary uh, focuses for evangelism. Come see me if you have any questions. I won't take the time to talk about it now, uh, but we're really excited. That's launching December 7th, and it is a, a compilation of testimonies from people here in our church that will be distributed all over our zip code. Potentially thousands of books going out over uh, throughout the year in 2015. And I was just talking about this subject the other night with some friends about why people don't come to church. And just as the video points out that people who are not a part of the church often feel accused. Uh, and so they have no desire to go someplace where they feel they won't be accepted. It's also true that when asked what they think about people who do go to church, most of those non-churchgoers respond that they believe that the church today is full of hypocrites. In fact, the results from uh, the Barna Group's most recent research states that 85% of those outside of the church that were polled believe that the church is hypocritical. And so to try and counter that stigma, much of the church, at least in the West and certainly in the United States, has largely, uh, in my belief, become obsessed with cultural relevance to such a degree that it often not only dictates how we carry out the ministry, but it has created an image of the church that looks very much like the culture around us, which I personally believe to be, in some cases, uh, an unfortunate byproduct of an overdeveloped desire to be accepted by pop culture. In other words, we've swung the pendulum from one extreme to the other. And the result of that, I think, is backfiring on the church, at least in some instances. The people outside look in and they say, well, they're no different than we are. And the problem with that is our message says that we're supposed to be different, very different. And yet we don't appear to be any different at all. And therefore, we're often viewed as hypocritical. And so, again, my personal belief is that the sooner the church realizes that being different uh, from the culture around us is actually a good thing, the sooner we can begin mending an image that has been marred by years of prosperity gospel, materialism, and wanton acceptance of every social norm that is uh, a compromise to the gospel message and an undermining of the church's authority and legitimacy as the purveyor of ultimate truth. We don't have much of a leg to stand on these days as far as the majority of people outside of the church are concerned because to them we're no different uh, than the rest of the world. We've lost our authority and legitimacy in their eyes as the place to go when you want answers, when you want the truth. And so if we could learn uh, to embrace what separates us from the world, what is different between us and the world, instead of trying to dress the church up and water the message down so as not to offend the sensibilities of the, the culture around us, if we could embrace our role as Christians members of the body of Christ and forsake the need to be accepted by every element of society, people may actually begin to look inside and realize, wow, this is different. This is nothing like my life outside of the church. Okay? And the Christian worldview is supposed to be opposite, actually, in almost every way to a secular non-Christian worldview. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 43 and 44. That doesn't make any sense. Not by our culture standards. 
And yet that's exactly how he told us to treat people that hate us. All right, he went on to say, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Huh? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 11 and 12. That's exactly the opposite of what our culture teaches us. Okay, and Jesus didn't stop there. He goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. How many of us do that? And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. Is this what the world sees when they look inside of our churches? Or rather, do they see people who are judgmental toward the rest of the world, but living no differently than the rest of the world? Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, uh, do not repay someone what you may think they deserve. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Who does that? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It flies in the face of what is culturally normal and acceptable. Okay, the life of a Christian is a life that is lived in total subjugation and sacrifice to Christ and to one another. That is a complete mystery to the world. And yet much of the world is drawn to it like a magnet because the world wants an example. The world needs an example of something that transcends this self-centered, self-everything society that we're living in. The world is looking for something different. And we're supposed to be different in the church. We're supposed to sacrifice for each other. We're supposed to live a life of complete reliance on God. We're supposed to be led by the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to pray and weep for each other and celebrate with each other. We're supposed to serve a God we can't see, but we know intimately and we place every ounce of trust and faith and confidence in. It's no wonder Paul said the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When the church is truly living out its mandate in scripture, it will not only be very different from the culture around it, but people who don't even understand it at first will be drawn to it. That's exactly what we see played out in the Bible. In every instance where the church is thriving and carrying on about the business of making disciples and caring for each other and worshiping together and giving everything that they had for one another, which looked nothing like the self-centered culture around them, in each case where we see that in the Bible, it says something to the effect of, and the Lord added to their number daily. Why? Because people outside of the church were looking in and they were seeing something different. You see, if life inside the church looks exactly like their life outside of the church, what advantage could there possibly be to coming in and joining us? The truth is the world is full of people who are hurting 
and confused and longing desperately for something different. And the church holds the key to exactly what they're looking for. But we have to learn to embrace it, not hide from it, not apologize for it and not dumb it down. We just have to live it every day and love everyone around us as we share with them what he's done for this world and what he's continuing to do for us. Okay, and so what I want to talk to you about today is what I believe to be the linchpin that keeps us tethered to this notion that uh, Christianity in the church has to mirror whatever is popular in culture at any point in history in order that we would be attractive to those outside of the church. In other words, what keeps us from embracing who we are? Why do Christians want to dress up the church like something it was never meant to be? What should the church look like? And how do we get there? And I think these are very important questions to answer because there are elements of the American church that have become very culturally relevant and very spiritually irrelevant. So we're going to look at the teachings of Jesus today and what the apostles had to say about that and how the church was shaped by those teachings in its early formation. Because I believe that it is within this context that we will discover the answer to these very important questions. What should the church actually look like and how do we get there? Okay, and so for those of you who've been here, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Acts each Sunday verse by verse, which is typically how I write and teach these messages. But today we're going to pause that sermon series uh, just this week for this anniversary service. And I'm going to share a standalone sermon with you. In other words, this is not a part of a series. It's a sermon I've entitled, Follow Me. Because this message, I believe, is critical to how we look forward as a local church to the coming year and how we address our community and our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a natural time to do that, of course, as we celebrate the two-year mark uh, since establishing this church and we begin looking forward to our third year of ministry and fellowship. Our main text this morning is in Luke, but before we get there, I want to establish first the manner in which Jesus called people to become his disciples and then compare that with the expectations within the church today for becoming disciples of Christ, all right? In Matthew chapter 4... In verse 19, Jesus approaches two fishermen while they were out fishing and they were were providing for themselves, Peter and Andrew. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then in Matthew 8, 21 and 22, uh, a man makes a request of Jesus to tend to his own family needs before leaving with Jesus. And he says, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. In Matthew 9, 9, Jesus encounters a man, Matthew, who is working at his job. And the verse says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In Matthew 19, 21, after a young and a very religious, a very wealthy man comes up to to Jesus and explains to him that he's kept all of the commandments, he's done all of the good deeds expected of a religious person, he asks Jesus what else he must do to have eternal life. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And then in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, Again, truly I say to you, in the new world, 
When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay? So just to quickly recap these verses, Jesus says, Stop worrying about how you will provide for yourself and follow me. Stop worrying about your family and follow me. Stop worrying about your job and follow me. Stop worrying about your comfort and follow me. Stop worrying about everything you've attained in this life and follow me. And oh, by the way, if you want to realize all the potential that I've created you for in this life and the next, you're going to have to follow me. And these are just a few examples just from the book of Matthew that show this inseparable connection between following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. In fact, those two designations, being a disciple of Christ and a follower of Christ, are inextricably linked. They cannot be separated. And yet I would submit to you today that separating them is exactly what has happened in much of the church in modern history, at least in, in Protestant circles. Okay, We've taken a handful of passages about salvation uh, Acts 16, 30 and 31, which says we must believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says we've been saved by grace through faith and not by works. Acts 2, 21, which says whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You could throw in the Philippian jailer who asked what must I do to be saved. And it was believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We've taken a handful of verses and we've created an entire doctrine of salvation that is not supported by the meta-narrative of the New Testament. In other words, the big picture. If you read the New Testament in its entirety, what we find is a very clear picture of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And the unification of those true disciples is what makes up the true church. So if we're going to answer the questions, what should the church look like and how do I get there? How do we get there? We first have to answer the question, what is a true disciple of Christ? Now, I don't want to unnerve you if you've prayed a prayer. I'm not saying you're not born again. Okay, we're going to get to that. But listen, we'll start off uh, by pointing out the fact that nowhere in the Bible is there a sinner's prayer that we're instructed to pray for salvation. And then people say, wait a minute. Acts 2.21, Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved which is a quote from the prophet Joel some 600 years earlier. That's true. Peter said that. So did Joel. And in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So are those contradictory statements? Not at all. Because it's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and proposition. The two not only go together, they are in fact inseparable. And yet much of the church has done just that. We've separated faith in Jesus from actually following Jesus. If you just say this sinner's prayer, you'll be born again. And then there's nothing more required for you to do to be a disciple of Christ. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. And it's certainly not what Jesus taught. But wait, Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Yes, and yet James, the brother of Jesus, said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the key. You, you believe that God is one, you do well. Guess what? Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not... Also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James 2, 14 through 26. Doesn't this contradict what Paul said? No, not in the least. Paul says that one, that no one is saved by works. Rather, we're saved by grace through faith. And James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, yes, we're saved by faith. And that faith cannot be separated from the ongoing act of following Jesus Christ, because that's what our faith compels us to do. Our faith is justified by the ongoing act of following Jesus Christ. Jesus never said to anyone, come have a personal relationship with me. He never said, ask me into your heart. What he did say over and over and over and over again was, follow me. Okay, we pray a prayer of faith, a sinner's prayer, if you will, more often than not at the end of these services here at our church. And that's a very good thing to do because it is necessary to repent from our sin. Peter makes that clear several places in Acts. And then we make a declaration of a commitment to and faith in Christ which Jesus is clear about in Matthew chapter 10. But what uh, kind of commitment is that prayer? What are we committing to? Is it simply a commitment to keep on believing? No, not at all. It's much more than that. It's a commitment to follow Him, which is why when we pray that prayer here, we always end it with, and I commit to follow you the rest of my life. That prayer is an opportunity for repentance. It's an expression of our faith in Jesus, and it's a commitment to follow Him. And yet, in some cases, I fear that we've outright rejected the notion that God requires anything more from us than a simple prayer of faith in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do now is, is just look at some of Jesus' own teaching and see if we can answer the questions, what should the church look like, and how do we get there by by discovering what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's turn to the gospel according to Luke in uh, chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 25 through 33. So not a long text this morning. Luke chapter 14, and we'll start on verse 25. And we'll, as always, stop along the way uh, just to make sure that we have a thorough understanding of what's being taught in these verses and then we'll make some relevant uh, points to the topic at hand this morning. So Luke 14, starting in verse 25. And just to set the stage here, Jesus is being followed around by large crowds of people. He's performing miracles among them. And he continues to teach them as he goes in the, uh, about the kingdom of God and how we are to live in it. Okay, 
Verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, at first glance, this is a bit of a peculiar saying by Jesus, to say the least. But the word hate in verse 26 is the Greek word miseo, which was used as a a Semitic expression, okay? Or to hate, or hating was a Hebrew and Arabic expression that meant to love less, right? Jesus was saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to make me a greater priority in your life than even your own family, even, even yourself. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple, okay? Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, He goes on to say, if you're going to follow me, that will require self-denial, which does not mean self-abasement, by the way, or or, uh, some kind of poverty mentality. What it means is letting go of self-determination in deference to total reliance on Christ and obedience to Him. And so he says, anything short of total submission to me, you cannot be my disciple. Okay? Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is Jesus. He's saying, listen, you'd better count the cost very carefully of exactly what it means to be my disciple. Because in order to be my disciple, you're going to have to follow me. And following me means you're going to have to give up everything. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Interestingly enough, this teaching mirrors what he said to those whom he called to follow him in the passages we just read earlier. Remember, every time he said, follow me, he preceded that statement with give up your job, give up your family, give up your comfort and security, give up everything that you have and all that you are and come follow me. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. This sounds like quite a bit more to me than simply saying a prayer at an altar and then believing that we've met our sole obligation for being a disciple of Christ for the rest of our lives. It doesn't mean that he's going to require you to quit your job, by the way. He might. But he might just be saying, make me the priority above your job. Make me the priority above your family. Make me the priority above your comfort. Make me the priority above everything else in your life. That that was Jesus' own message to those who would decide to follow him. And therein lies our dilemma. Because the church in many cases has bought into the idea that all we have to do is say a simple prayer. And we're set for life. And so if that's the premise, the foundation that we're standing on as believers, then the goal, our focus in terms of ministry shifts from making disciples which as we've read requires a a lifelong process of sacrifice and self-denial and commitment to simply getting other people to repeat some kind of prayer. 
In other words, if we believe that being a disciple and follower of Christ is completely satisfied once we say a short prayer, then we're going to do everything that we can to get people to say that prayer. And I believe that's what's happening in much of the American church today. We put everything we have into making the church attractive to outsiders so that they'll want to come inside. And then we work really hard to prove to them that life inside can be just as cool and comfortable as life is outside. It can be all about us and how hip and relevant and and, uh, current and culturally with it we are. And then I think that elements uh, of the church have become so obsessed with being accepted by mainstream culture that we've made it the focus. And we've told them, if you'll just say this simple prayer, everything will be all right and you can go on living however you choose because you're saved now. You're in. And because God is full of grace and love, we don't really need to worry about things like holiness or righteousness or sin or judgment. So we end up with a church that has lost its identity because it is no longer modeled after the teachings of Christ. Rather, it has modeled itself after the constantly changing moods of culture. However, when we accept that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a lifelong process that requires us to give up everything for Him, and we accept that Jesus' will for us is to spend our lives making disciples out of others, what then becomes our focus Instead of being culturally relevant, all of a sudden that takes a back seat to being lovingly and sometimes brutally honest with people. Jesus said, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? People need to count the cost before becoming a disciple of Christ. They need the truth. And the truth is this journey of being a follower of Jesus is unlike any other life you could possibly live. Being a part of the church is different because the church is made up of people who've given everything for Jesus Christ and for each other. And so, yes, we're going to try and make our building nice and play music that glorifies God, that people can relate to. Yes, yes, being relevant matters. But it is not the most important thing. We cannot allow it to become our focus because being a disciple of Christ, following Him is not easy. It's not common, and it doesn't make any sense to the world. And that means we're different. We're supposed to be. That's okay. Okay, one other point I want to bring up here. Because anytime we talk about working for Christ, anytime we talk about works, inevitably people become uncomfortable, and someone usually cries, legalism. And so I just want to address this idea of our faith being useless, as James says, dead without works. Because we know we cannot earn our salvation. That's true. We cannot do anything to earn our salvation. Hear me, that is true. It is a free gift from God. We're saved by grace through faith, without question. So when we talk about works... It's really important that we understand it's not about earning. It's about producing. This is what James was saying. He was saying, hey, you can talk about your faith all you want to, but if your faith is real, if it's genuine, you'll be producing good things from your life. And if you aren't producing good things from your life, James says, I question whether or not your faith is real. He said, even the demons believe and shudder. Faith apart from works is useless. 
Jesus said the same thing, by the way, in another way. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now, obviously, he's not talking about trees here, is he? He's using imagery to describe those who are true followers and those who are not. And then he continues, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. This conversation about works as they relate to our faith is not a conversation about earning. It's a conversation about producing. What kind of fruit are you producing in your life? True disciples, true followers of Christ produce good fruit, according to Jesus. In fact, he says a true disciple cannot bear bad fruit. And someone who pretends to be a disciple but is actually not following him cannot bear good fruit. So just remember this, okay? Remember this the next time someone tells you you're being legalistic when you talk about holiness or repentance or making a greater effort to please Him or whatever. It has nothing to do with earning anything. It has everything to do with producing. Okay, and actually those people who will tell you that all is required to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ is to say a simple prayer. That is actually legalism at its worst because what they're saying is all you have to do is check off this box And you're all set with God. That is nothing more than religious legalism. Okay? The way of a true disciple is a life of sacrifice and commitment that produces good fruit. And as a benefit by living that way, he gives us immeasurable joy and peace and power and strength and fulfillment. I've been a believer of Jesus Christ for most of my life. But it wasn't until much later into adulthood that I decided to actually begin following him. And it wasn't until then that I understood there was a difference between the two. A difference between simply believing in Jesus and following him. And how being a true disciple of Jesus Christ meant that those two things have to become one thing. They have to become one. If two people get married and the husband says, well, even though, you know, I rarely talk to my wife... um, I don't ever listen to her. You know, I don't ever do what she asked me to do. There's no real intimacy between us. But I know we're married because we made a vow in front of a preacher at an altar and a whole bunch of people in the church. And yet there are people who say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And if they're honest, they would say, oh, you know, I don't talk to him a lot. I rarely listen to what he says. I, I don't really do what he asks me to. I guess there's not really any intimacy between us. But I know I'm saved because I prayed a prayer in front of a preacher at an altar and a bunch of people in the church. How does that make us followers of Christ? How does that make a marriage? That makes a a dead marriage, doesn't it? The truth is we're not saved by a prayer. That prayer is part of the process. We need to pray that prayer. But that's not what saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. And that faith is proven out in our lives by the fruit that we produce, which is the product of a life spent following Jesus Christ. 
The prayer that we pray, which we should pray and we do, it's simply an act of repentance, an expression of faith and a commitment to Him that we intend to give Him everything that we have and all that we are for the rest of our lives. It is step one, is square one in becoming a true disciple of Christ. And when we started this church, we started it with the idea that it would be a place where disciples or true disciples are being made. And so we've worked really hard to try and always be honest with you, to love you. We've tried really hard to be authentic because we knew that anything less, any amount of compromise for the sake of trying to be something we're not, would mean losing any chance at all at influencing anyone for Christ. So we started this church with that intention, with that purpose. And to be honest, what we didn't expect was all of you to show up and be the kind of uh, honestly exceptional, serious about God, hungry for true discipleship people that you are. You have blown us away. These past two years have been amazing for me and my family because of you and what God is doing in you and through you. We've watched you sacrifice for each other. Man, we've watched you get excited about helping others and about building this church and about bringing others in and inviting them to be a part of our family. We've watched you just be who you are, which is the finest group of people we could ever hope to be associated with. None of us is perfect, and we all have struggles, certainly including me. But God is doing some pretty great things through this church. There is really good fruit pouring out of this place. It's pouring out of you. And the best is yet to come. I believe that. We've supported missionaries all over the world. We've ministered and met the needs of many right here in our own neighborhood. And we're making disciples right here within these walls. Not only will we continue that work as long as we stay focused on Christ, but I'm completely convinced that He wants to continue to build this church and to expand our reach and make us more effective than ever in reaching the lost and continuing to make disciples. And all this has been happening here over the past two years. You know what? It's very different than what's happening in the culture around us. It's not common. This is how the church is supposed to look. And it only gets better as we continue following Jesus. We're going to two Sunday services next week because we've outgrown our building. But we believe with great conviction that we're supposed to move closer to downtown Traveler's Rest because there's, there are more people there. We want to do more with facilities than we're able to do now. Because we're so limited with space. We want to do more outreach into our community. We want to provide a place that can accommodate all those ministries. But as it stands, we can't even have fellowships downstairs anymore. Because there isn't enough room to fit even a portion of our our growing family. And that's a good problem to have. It's still a problem. And yet it's not too big for God to handle. We know that. So as we look forward together. Let's pray for more good fruit to increasingly come out of this church. Let's pray for greater evangelism and more disciples than we can hold. I hope we outgrow buildings every year. Let's pray for the right building and the right location to maximize our exposure in the community and allow us to accommodate all that God has placed in our hearts for reaching our city for Christ. Our best days are ahead of us. I know that. And the key to all of this, the key to all of it, is that we keep following Jesus. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't grow weary of doing good, of producing good fruit.
Keep following Jesus. Keep making disciples. Keep caring about each other. Keep working in your ministry. In this church, don't give up when it gets hard or difficult because we can't afford to lose our focus. This city can't afford for us to lose our focus. Jesus is calling us and over and over and over and over again. He's simply saying, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Let's pray. Sam.